Welcome to the Ontario Outdoor Pursuit Podcast. This Ontario-generated podcast is here to talk outdoor living, fishing, and hunting. Give all kinds of geeky tech talks and hunting tips with things that have worked for us. We all have a story to tell, and here's ours. Welcome back, everyone. Cam here with another awesome episode of Ontario Outdoor Pursuit. This week, I've had the privilege to sit in with a special guest um, from a facility that some of you may or may not know. Um, Salt Haven Wildlife Rehabilitation and Education Center. So thanks, Brian, so much for having me here. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Kim. So tell me uh, and everyone about Salt Haven and it, it's come up. Where did where, How did this come about? Well, Salt Haven has been around uh, as, a, um, as a nonprofit organization since 2004. Uh, we've been rehabilitating wildlife long before that, but uh, we've been a nonprofit organization since then, 2004, August. And um, we started out small, just a couple of volunteers. We saw maybe, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 patients a year, and uh, it's just slowly grown from there. Uh, we have uh, currently 120 clinical volunteers. We work three shifts a day, seven days a week. Uh, that uh, help sick, injured, or orphaned wildlife get back on their feet and get back into the wild. Mm -hmm. I I think that's great. Um, And and this may come off uh, funny. We were just kind of speaking previous to recording here. You know, how we can sit down and we can have this conversation while you're rehabilitating and I'm hunting. (laughs) How do you view that? Well, I think there's a a place in the world for sure for responsible hunting, you know, I totally don't agree with, you know, getting a case of 2-4 and going out in the woods and <laughs> shooting anything that moves, yeah. you know. That's not the... But when you're using the food for, for food or using the, the meat for food, uh, I think that's fine. Uh, we, uh, I, I'm not a hunter. I have two sons that are hunters, and um, they are responsible hunting. Uh, so, I, you know, I've come to see that as being okay. Um, we, uh, we see some animals that have been shot up irresponsibly, um, but I would think that a hunter that knows his craft is, uh, practiced his shooting. I, I had cross rifles and crowns when I was in high school, and uh, that, uh, I think that helped me to understand the, the thrill of handling a gun well and being a good shot with it. So, yeah, I, th- I think it's fine. I don't have any misgivings about hunters whatsoever, as, as long as I say that they, they are taking a shot that they know they're going to make a kill and, uh, and they're hunting responsibly. I can certainly respect that. And obviously, um, you know, it probably wouldn't be the same response from everyone. But, you know, my whole goal here, and like I was saying to you, is to educate. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, someone with your education and knowledge and background has that education. I, I want to give that to other people. I want to help share that. And you know, if this is the source to do so, I think this is you know maybe what we all need to take a leap of faith and kind of look to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of people that are uneducated, and I think this is great that me and you can have this conversation. So. Um, I want to talk more about Salt Haven because uh, I, I have friends that have brought things here before for some rehabilitation, things that are hit by cars. Tell me more about that and I guess where where do you see a lot of problems, issues arising from, you know, as kind of humans and nature, humans and wildlife connect? Yeah, you know, there's so many different things that um, that we, the expansionary us as humans, uh, you know, we have an impact on nature and wildlife. And a lot of that negative impact is done indiscriminately because people just don't know any better. You know, there's the obvious stuff that happens. I mean, the expansionary us is we have to have houses and subdivisions and things like that. We're moving animals out into territory that is unfamiliar with them, where they're competing against, uh, um, you know, mating and food, finding food, um, and it becomes difficult, and often they don't do very well. We get, Cam, we get lots of calls every year from people in new subdivisions that say, you know, we've got these damn deer in our backyard that are eating all our shrubs, and sometimes I so bad want to say, they're not in your backyard, you're in theirs, because last year that was a, you know, it was a woodlot. And, um, 
but it's it's an education process, and we try to help people understand that there is a way to live harmoniously with wildlife. And I think hunting probably plays a part. I mean, hunting is one of those things that goes back to times immemorial, you know. It's... Um, it's always been there, and uh, like I say, if it's if it's done in a responsible way, I don't have any fault with that. We we see about 2,000 patients a year. We have two locations, one in Regina, Saskatchewan, and one here in Strathroy, Ontario. And uh, the uh, we, we, we end up with about a 65% success rate in getting those animals back into the wild. Uh, we see lots of Canada geese and ducks um, and uh, hawks owls, eagles, uh, fawns in the spring. We're not capable of um, rehabilitating adult deer because they're just, they know who they are and they do more damage to themselves than what we can do good just because of thrashing and so we, we can't really help them too much. Um, but uh, just about everything else, we do a lot of songbirds um, and we have lots of volunteers that, that help out. Last year with COVID, uh, we had to cut way back on volunteers because our three pillars of volunteer um, foundation uh, principles uh, rest on keeping volunteers safe, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, keeping the animals safe. Yep. And number three, making sure volunteers have a meaningful experience while they're here. So in keeping with that, we, uh, we try real hard to educate our volunteers as to what these animals are all about and, uh, and the plight of Canadian wildlife that come to us in the hopes of being able to get them back out into the wild again. So it's a big job, long, long hours, especially in the spring and summer, because we see a lot of babies at that point, but uh, throughout the year and uh, fundraising and you know, staffing and all of that stuff. It's, uh, it's huge. You know, fortunately, Salt Haven is surrounded by really, really kind-hearted, good people. And, um, but we try to choose our volunteers that are going to be able to look at things objectively because it's, it's, it's not a petting zoo and mm-hmm. uh, it's not all fun. There's a dark side to Salt Haven too. And uh, the, the, it's a side that the public doesn't see very often. But um, yeah, we do the best we can with what we got. So the uh, you mentioned their sixty five percent success rate. Would would you say? Because uh, to me, I mean, I, I don't know too much or much at all about the rehabilitation. Um, but but is that a high or a low number? To me, out of you know those patients, I would say that's probably a pretty good number. Now, what kind of keeps you guys from being that eighty five percent? Well, some of the animals that come in with catastrophic injuries, you know, it's um, it's kind of a touch-and-go thing. You think, well, you know, should this animal be euthanized right now or does it have a chance? And that's a tough decision to make. Mm-hmm. You're really playing God a little bit there, and that's uncomfortable for a lot of people, including yeah. myself. And so some of those animals that you think, well, this owl might have a chance. You know, he just ate a whole mouse that was loaded with rat poison, but... We think he has a chance. We have one of those in the clinic right now, a great horned owl. He's just kind of clinging, but he keeps bouncing back, and we're hoping that we can get him back out into the wild again. But you just don't know. And uh, so the ones that come in that are really messed up and don't make it, they account for a large part of the percentages that keep it down around the 65 70% range. Um, you know, for an animal that arrives DOA, dead on arrival we you know we don't count them in the mix because we haven't had a chance to work with them really you know they died before they got here so Mm -hmm. you know it's not it's not rehab you can't rehab a dead animal that's right but uh yeah that's that's basically what we do and um it's uh it can be a tough haul sometimes you're getting up in the middle of the night in, in some cases to um to get fluids into an animal that's that really needs it and he's dehydrated because of whatever and uh, if you don't do it, they're going to die. So it's a huge responsibility. And um, as I say, fortunately, we have a lot of good volunteers that uh, have kind hearts, but not bleeding hearts. Mm-hmm. You know, they uh, they understand the realities, and uh, but uh, it works out pretty good. Um, you know, I kind of wish I had a, spoke to the representatives here uh, when we were sitting there, um, just to hear their take as well on the hunting. You know, because. Uh, you know, it's not always a great image for, you know, how's Brian and Cam going to sit there yeah. and have this conversation? <laughs> so maybe after I'll pick their brain even a little bit about it. Um, 
so this, you know, th this went from you starting this kind of smaller, uh, I wouldn't call it a business then, but now did you ever see it coming to this? Short answer is yes. It's always been my goal right from the very beginning. I knew I, you know, you couldn't get there in a day. It's been quite a while in the, in the coming, you know. It's, uh, we moved into our new facility here, which has been our ultimate uh, dream uh, a couple of years ago. And um, it's wonderful here. The, the original homesteaders, uh, the Vandercroft family, um, uh, Mr. Vandercroft had a master's degree in horticulture and I mean the grounds are incredible there's trees mm -hmm. here from all over the world you know we got Kentucky beautiful coffee spot. bean trees <laughs> where the heck I've never heard of those before we got them here <laughs> uh, we have blue ash trees that aren't um, they're not affected by the ash borer um, we have tamaracks and larches and uh, and conifers here from literally all over the world and uh, so it, it's it's a beautiful spot we're hoping to do uh, tours of Salt Haven, not only the clinic, but the grounds as well, as soon as COVID, you know, allows yeah. us to do that. And hopefully I'm still around to see that day. <laughs> I would imagine you will be. And I, I hope that, uh, yeah, a lot more people can really share the experience here because it, it is a beautiful spot. Yeah, it really is. There's 25 acres and there's about five acres of woodlot and um, lots and lots of birds uh, that visit the bird feeders here. Uh, sometimes we have to get the bird book out, even us, you know, to <laughs> figure out what yep. the heck is at the bird feeder today. But uh, yeah, it's it's wonderful. It, we moved literally from a one-room clinic back in Mount Bridges to a seven or eight-room clinic now here in Strathroy. So it gives us a lot more flexibility. And, uh, and of course, the property is ours. We're not renting, so mm -hmm. it leaves us open to be able to build things. We have clearance from the municipality to... Uh, to build on another 4,500 square feet. Uh, our plan is to build an education center oh, so that awesome. we can help people to understand what you know our Canadian wildlife is all about yeah. and uh, help to respect that in a way that uh, makes the world a little better place. You know. Now, on, on the education center side of things, um, is, is your background in teaching at all? No. Uh, my background is actually in music. Right. Uh, I was on the road for quite a bit. Uh, we had four songs in the top 10 the Canadian charts, and we opened for acts like the Beach Boys, Frankie Valley, uh, and the Four Seasons, Mamas and Papas, Roy Orbison, uh, John Cougar Mellencamp. Really? That's um, cool. So that was, you know, that was my life before Salt Haven type of thing. Yep. And um, so I, I learned what I learned through going to conferences, uh, sitting at the feet of veterinarians, uh, watching them uh, in procedures and whatnot, with the result that now uh, about 50% of the um, uncomplicated surgeries we can do here, you know, wound closures and things like that. Um, so it's, it's evolved. It's come a long ways. And now we have volunteers. We have uh, two employees. Uh, I'm not one of them. <laughs> I don't know how that works. I'm the boss and I don't get paid. But anyway, uh, I think it's important enough that, uh, that I lead out by example and um, the things. Uh, I, my goal right now is to make sure that Salt Haven survives post Brian Salt mm -hmm. and um, that uh, the work will continue. Because I think as time goes on, environmental issues are going to become more and more controversial. They're and, already uh, taking a, a large impact. They really are. You know, I, I didn't know if I would ever see, and I guess at the age I am, which isn't very old, but I, I think it's going to progress, unfortunately. Yeah. And it's something I, I hope I'm not around to see the worst. Well, I tend to agree with you. You know, I think our grandchildren are going to live in a different world than what you and I have been accustomed to. I mean, I can't imagine a world in the spring without robins, you know, but gosh, the... Um you know the 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 world the planet report that comes out about every two years. Those trends are moving. You know, um, I the first one I saw was in 2014, and they estimated that uh, a population of vertebrates that they had studied, the population numbers had decreased by 52 percent since 1970, and that was taken in 2014. The last one, last year that they took in 2020. Uh, those same numbers uh, had decreased by 68%. So at that current trend, we're in big trouble down Very the road. Much so. yeah. it's just Our planet will look like Mars before too long. <laughs> yeah, plummeting Yeah, would be the correct term, I think, yeah. to use in that situation. 
So I guess that kind of answers my next question is where you see Salt Haven going in, in the future. Um, you know, you talked about the educational center. Is that going to be something that would be open to a lot of the public? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, Do you have a kind of a rubric in mind on, you know, how, how you're going to set up, set that up and feature that? Well, it's all going to be based on grants, uh, you know, and uh, what we can do. I mean, we have encouraged people to, th- to think of Salt Haven uh, where their wills are concerned. Some people don't have uh, anything to leave to family because they're the only ones. And, uh, you know, we're in line there. Pick us, you know, <laughs> because yeah, yeah. we can do something positive in the environment by teaching people uh, how they can interact with nature in a positive way. And, uh, and and actually enhance what we have now. Um, so uh, yeah, and we 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 feel the sentiments from people. Like we get 150 phone calls a day on a busy day in the summertime. So we we have a pretty good feeling for what's going on out there and what people are trying to do. And sometimes they mess up terribly because mm-hmm. they don't know. And so we want to uh, provide that education for them so that they know how to be responsible in the environment and wh- and why it's important. You know, I think we don't we don't have any privileged insights down the road where things are going, but you can kind of sense it. You know, it's like hunting. There is a nasty feel for it. Yeah, uh, it's kind of like hunting. You got to kind of sense where the animals are and where they're going, and mm-hmm. and where your where where your next shot should be. And it's kind of like with us as well. The same way we are kind of looking into the future. We're planning. We want to be in the right place at the right time, and. Um, Make sure that whatever we are using to to further that cause, that we're not just blowing away ammunition, you know, in, yeah. in terms of uh, donations and grants and whatnot. Yeah, so, you want to utilize all that to, you know, areas that are most crucially needed. It's strategic. Yeah. yeah. Like I say, it's like hunting. It's strategic. Yeah, very yeah. much so. Yeah. So um, I, I guess on, on the note of uh, you got two boys – they're mm-hmm. hunters. Mm-hmm. You know, are, would you say that hunters are, hunters aren't, but rather, you know, uh, society as a whole moving into all these rural areas now, you know, what would you see as the, the, the more weighted impact to wildlife? Well, a lot because of what, has- what a lot of people are, you know, saying is in like, we had the conversation is hunters are the worst. Mm. hunters you know they're out with a case of beer they're shooting guns and <laughs> shooting lots of animals mm-hmm. so far from the truth yeah no i i believe that uh, hunters for the most part are the responsible individuals and they're doing the right thing by the animal um you know i um it, it, again it's a matter of education isn't it mm-hmm. um unless you know somebody who's a, a, a really good hunter uh, you probably have some, not insights, but some some uh, perception that things are not the way they should be amongst hunters. Right. But um, yeah, I I, um, I think that the education side of what we do is extremely important. People have a tendency to think in terms of what goes on in the clinic, but more and more as time goes on, I have a sense of what is happening on the education side. That's right. It doesn't just stop in your clinic. No. It goes to those dozers and everything that are running down yep. those woodlots. Yep. And and a lot of it has to do with these large construction companies. Um, it's all money, you know. And uh, I remember back when I lived in Oak Ridge so many years ago, uh, there was a subdivision that uh, went up across Hyde Park Road and uh, I'm a pilot as well, and I was hired by a construction company to uh, take pictures of the area, and I had no idea at the time that it was a construction company. It was mm-hmm. just a photographer that asked me to take him up. And one of the, the bad things that happened with that was that there were some ponds back in there at that time, and uh, I, I guess they knew that there was going to be some backlash because there was a lot of things in there. There was hog-nosed snakes, which are endangered. There was turtles in there that are, were threatened. Um, and so somebody, and I'm not, I can't say who it was, but somebody went in and poisoned the pond. And uh, so there was dead wildlife everywhere. And uh, that, really, that really made me want to do better at mm-hmm. what I do in mm-hmm. educating people 
there was no need for that, you know. Um, I mean, things can be planned around nature, and um, and that was just a, a bad decision made by somebody, and uh, the rest is history, you know. Yeah. But um, I, I think a large part of, of what goes on in expanding as the human population grows, I mean, shoot, 50 years ago, uh, we have doubled the human population on the planet in 50 years. In the next 25, we'll probably do it again. You know? So yeah. you, you got to think in terms of what will happen with wildlife. I mean, this 25-acre property that we have now in 25 years is going to be something that is going to be coveted by, because we're on the edge of Strathroy, mm-hmm. I can see expansion happening here, and they're going to be wanting this property like crazy. So what kind of opposition will we face? Uh, what kind of things do we need to do to protect ourselves? Um, I don't know. Maybe we'll hire a bunch of your hunters out there and just <laughs> <laughs> just keep keep the construction companies at bay. I don't know, uh, you know. But I think you get you got to you got to have an eye for the future. You got to right. look at things and say, okay, well, look, this is what we're going to do, and we're going to stick to this, and uh, because we know it's good, and, and and I think that's what we're trying to do now. We're trying to show people that these animals are very smart. They're intelligent. Um, they have um, that they have emotions. You know, mm-hmm. I was taught when I was in school, animals didn't have emotion. Well, shoot, if you got a dog and you ask him if he wants to go out, does he get excited? I mean, yeah. the damn dog understands English, for yeah. crying out loud, That's you right. know? I've got, I've got the most emotional dog you could ever think of. <laughs> there you go. That's for sure. And, and being happy is an emotion, and they're capable of being afraid, and that's an emotion. So, yep. you know, um, I, I don't know about the aspects of love. Do they actually love? I suspect that maybe they do a little bit. I see that in Canada geese, you know, and, and maybe it's just an, an instinctive thing. But, you know, I think we have a tendency as humans to give credibility to things that are intelligent. You're going to give more credibility to a bald eagle than you will an earthworm. And we do it with people. Mm-hmm. I mean, if Absolutely. I think that you're more intelligent than another friend of mine, I'm probably going to give you more credibility than that other friend. Mm-hmm. So the misconception that animals are not intelligent and they don't have that ability to think and to feel um, is uh, leaves people with the thinking, well, it's just a dumb animal. Well, it's not. Mm-hmm. And they need to be treated with respect. Absolutely. And that's where responsible hunting comes in. I have a brother-in-law who prays over the animal that he shoots because he realizes he's taken a life, mm-hmm. and that is responsible. You know, he is doing the right thing. He's bringing food home for his family, but he is very, um, he's very aware that uh, life has been taken in, in, that, uh, in that quest. So I think that's part of Salt Haven's quest going forward, is to help people to understand that nature is there. It's a wonderful thing. It is an industry. Hunting is a responsible thing. And uh, we can we can have both. We can That's do right. both, you know. Yeah. So could you take me through a day of Salt Haven? What happens here at the crack of dawn? Yeah, well, um, we're up and at it. Uh, first thing in the morning, um, we're here uh, at that. Uh, I'm talking about summer months now when we're most busy. But usually the day will start around 6.30 or 7. Our volunteers, uh, our trainers arrive about a half hour before the volunteers do. Trainers organize the shift. Uh, when the volunteers arrive, we have what we call a huddle meeting. And uh, the trainers uh, point out which animals need the most attention, um, what's happening by the way of uh, medications and feedings and cage cleaning and laundry. Heck, we do five loads of laundry a day here in the summertime. So there's a lot of grunt work. Yeah, um, It's not all you know, fun and games. It's, it's not, not a petting zoo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, and we get about 90 uh, applications a year for volunteers. And last year we only took five. Uh, there were others that w- would have made the grade, but COVID got in the way. But generally speaking, out of 90 applications, we will take maybe 15 or 20. So you got maybe one chance in four of being able to volunteer. So our volunteers have a tendency to be the best of the best. And they work as a family. They're a team. And, uh, and that makes all the difference. So we start at 8 o'clock in the morning. The shift runs for four hours. At 12 o'clock, we have an hour off for rounds. And then at 1, we start again until 5, have another hour off. And at 6, we go till 10. So it's a long day. Mm-hmm. So if you're starting at uh, 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning and you're finishing up at 10, 
you're exhausted by the end of the day. It's quick-paced. There's uh, oftentimes a lot of emotions involved in what you do, you know. Yep. And um, so you're emotionally and physically drained by the end of the day. But the next morning, you get up and you do it again. Yeah. So uh, why do we do it? Simply because we think it's important. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that there isn't yeah. a need for another response. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really important, and it'll become increasingly important as we go forward on that education side. So. Um, yeah. Do you, uh, your volunteers, do you have repeat volunteers? Um, do those volunteers, you know, how, how long is the volunteering process for? Is this something that, you know, you come in for a day or two of the week? Or is this something that, you know, you're going to run for, Brian, you're going to hire me for the 2020 se- 2021 season as a volunteer? How does that work? Yeah, we bring them on with the expectation that they're able to commit to at least two shifts a week. Uh, and that's important for a number of reasons, uh, not because we need more volunteer help, but because our first pillar, as I mentioned before, is that we need to keep our volunteers safe. And unless they're familiar with the animals that they're working with, they could get hurt. And sometimes that hurt can come from things you can't see. You know, talons, teeth, claws, those are all things, obviously, that can hurt you. But things you can't see, like zoonotics, bacteria, viruses, and things of that nature, can really be a real problem. And if you're not paying attention and you're not doing the things that you should be doing, yep, you can get sick. So we have to be very, very careful with the volunteers that we choose that they can follow instruction, that they're not, um, they're not overly emotional about the things that are going on here at Salt Haven. And um, because we don't allow any cuddling, you know, like like fawns, for instance. By the sounds of it, it doesn't sound like there's a whole lot of time for it anyhow. Some animals imprint or um, habituate on you so easily. And uh, we only allow one, maybe two people max uh, to work with our fawns because they habituate on people. Oh, my gosh. They'll be following you around here. You'll be chasing them off with ATVs, you know, uh, when you release them. So... And that's a, that's a ruined deer, and he's going to get shot, mm-hmm. uh, not by hunters necessarily, but the OMR is coming out, and they're going to get rid of him because he's bothering neighbors. And it, so we can't have that happen. So we got to think ahead, you know. Our squirrels uh, and other animals that have to be hand-fed, uh, like baby beavers and whatnot, um, they, uh, you know, they become dependent on people for their food. But you can't do otherwise because they don't know how to eat on their own. So what do we do with them? Well, they go in pre-release cages for four to six weeks until they get wild. And when you go in the cage and try to clean the cage and they want to kill you, we know they're ready to go. Yeah. Uh, But otherwise, they're just a nuisance that we're releasing into the wild, and that's not good rehab. So I want to ask you on beavers as well uh, because some of the ecological impact that I have seen on a number of my hunting properties is so dramatic. Mm. you know, how, how important are they to our system? Um, you know, when they're creating as much damage as they possibly can. Yeah. Well, some of us look at it as damage and others look at it as a natural process. Right. There are people, believe it or not, that want beavers on their property to restore the property to what it used to look like. They'll have a stream running through, but you know, over the years, the beavers have been killed and the streams have been, the dams have been taken out and uh, things aren't what they used to be. Um, you know, back in, where was it? Is it Yellowstone, where they introduced uh, beavers uh, to the back end of the park? Really? And uh, that increased the, um, the population of bison and uh, uh, elk uh, because grasslands grew up around the ponds. And um, uh, the wolf population uh, also flourished. It, it became a natural habitat again before it was, you know, before that, it was all artificial type of thing, according to how we as humans wanted it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in farmland, yeah, a beaver can be destructive, if we can use that word, because they're building dams or flooding areas. It's not, uh, it's not, but we can act responsibly in response to that. Uh, there's a guy out in Quebec that um, did some experimenting with beavers because every time he blew up their dam, within a couple of days, it was right back again. Oh, yeah. And uh, he didn't want to kill them. Um, he knew that if he just trapped them and took them away, they'd be somebody else's problem and they'd probably get killed anyway. He came back. So what he did, <laughs> yeah. I know, I can feel it coming. <laughs> so anyway, what happened was he took a little cassette recorder with the sound of running water and he put it on top of the dam. 
and uh, this played throughout the night. Well, when he came back, he couldn't find the darn thing. And what had happened was the beavers had piled sticks and mud and on top of his recorder. And he came to realize that when you put a hole in the dam, they they patch yeah, it up yeah, because of the running prepared. water sound, right? So he got real smart about it, and he thought, okay, well, then let's drill a hole at the bottom of the dam, stick a pipe in there, and, you know, let's take the dam right out, put the pipe in, the water will flow through the pipe, the beaver will never hear the water, and they won't bother, and the water will continue to flow. And it, it worked like magic. So there's a real good example of working with nature Absolutely. rather than trying to work against it and yeah. beating your head against the wall because yeah. beavers are really industrious. You well, know? I, you know, as I said, to me, it's... Uh, I, I've got tons of photos of it. It was crazy. It was, uh, I'd probably say between 50 and a hundred poplar trees that this beaver just had absolutely demolished. Mm. To me, I saw that as damage. Yep. I'm not educated enough to say what is their vital role to our system. Yeah. Well, here's another good example. Edmonton had a real problem with beaver on, I think it is at the Bow or the Saskatchewan river that runs through Edmonton. Anyway, um, the beaver were chopping down these huge uh, aspen trees all along the river, and um, they were creating log jams and just all kinds of problems. And so there was this big cry out, kill the darn beaver, you know, and get rid of them. And uh, so, But the city had another idea. What they did was they put a work crew out, and they wrapped wire around all the trees near the river that they wanted to save. And the ones that they didn't want to save, the ones that were already dead or dying, they left it open. The beaver took out all those dead, dying trees and didn't charge the city a penny for it. And they ended up saving the trees that they wanted to. So another example of working with, with nature absolutely. rather than trying to yep. work against it. So you would certainly before, um, you know, I, I was at West last year for work and what a beautiful place it is to be. And it seems that they're so much more involved with their wildlife mm. and, uh, you know, nature all around them because it is. The, the highway crossings and below the highways, you know, is that something you'd also like to see here for our, our wildlife? Yeah. I, I think anything that makes it better for a while. I mean, hunters don't go out with the idea of just killing for sport I don't think I it's I mean it's they enjoy nature as much as I do I mean when you're out there hunting I mean you're enjoying the birds and the trees and everything else that you come in contact with out there yep. the wind the smells uh, I always say there, there's never a bad day of hunting I would much rather sit in the tree and listen to birds and squirrels chirp than going to work and making a buck there you go and I think a lot of hunters are think just like you do mm -hmm. so anything that we can make I mean, we drink the same water, we breathe the same air. When we're helping wildlife, we're just helping ourselves, aren't we? Yeah. So why not? So everything has its place. Every animal has its place. Um, you had mentioned a topic there that we'll, we'll dive into here shortly, but I want to pick your brain briefly on uh, th this whole coyote hunting thing that's going mm. on right now. I want to know your side of things and your, uh, your expertise on their role in our ecosystem. Yeah. You know, some people would think that the coyote population is out of control, um, and I'm not so sure that it isn't, but um, it, it's that way for a reason. And my personal feeling is um, we're getting more calls for uh, animals like great horned owls in the city, coyotes in the city, and not just in the subdivisions. I mean, they are right downtown. Mm -hmm. And um, we've we've had calls at Wortley Road uh, in in London. I mean that's you know core area. Yeah, absolutely. And they were denning in somebody's backyard underneath a woodpile. Um, but a lot of it is due to the fact that um, again the decisions we make as humans, we leave. There are people in that core area that leave copious amounts of food out for feral cats. The feral cat population has bloomed. And so has the coyote population. Is there a correlation? Don't know, but I'm not so sure there's not. Uh, and where did that, uh, what started that? Us, That's humans. Right. Did we mean to, did we see that coming? No, we didn't. But it did uh, because of our actions. So what's the remedy? Get the food in. Don't leave food out at night. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it may not attract coyotes or it may not even attract cats. Could attract raccoons. Well, that raccoon's bringing his family the next night and then all the relatives the night after. And then before you know it, they're ripping shingles off your roof looking for a denning site for their young in the spring. Yeah. 
So uh, we create a lot of our own problems. Uh, In much of it, you take the food away, you're going to take the problem away with it. 90% of the cases, you will do that. So what would be an ideal situation to help uh, just control the coyote population in the rural areas. I mean, uh, I had a conversation with an individual just before I came here that, you know, it, a, a coyote that is back here in the, in the for- forest is not going to be the same as a coyote in a rural area. Mm. This coyote is not what you're going to be needed to worry about because he's already in his, you mm-hmm. know, his adaptable home. It's the one that's in your backyard mm-hmm. in downtown London, chasing your dog, chasing your dog. You yeah. know, if your youngins is out playing, you know, what's to say they're not coming in the backyard. Have coyotes bit people? Yes. Mm-hmm. I don't want that to go unnoticed. Some, for some reason, people don't seem to think, well, they're not going to attack you. Most likely, most cases, they won't. Have they? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And they will continue to do that if, you know, given cir- certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. How do you feel that we can kind of cope with that, with those in the rural areas? Well, again, it's education. You know, it's uh, what do you do when you come face to face with a coyote or worse yet, coyotes? Uh, the pack mentality is different than the individual, as you probably right. know. Um, and, and most people's response, they see three or four coyotes on the path, turn and hightail it. Worst thing you can do. Again, it's education, helping people to realize, make yourself big, grab sticks, throw it at them, do whatever you have to do to discourage them. And sometimes that doesn't even work. But um, I think... Uh, the, the problem that we see in the rural communities is that the coyotes are still being fed, uh, not intentionally by people, but they let their cats out at night, and all the barn cats and whatnot are a plentiful supply. Uh, some people think, well, yeah, but cats can climb trees. Well, so can coyotes. Yep, I've seen and, it. And, uh, you know, the tree is no shelter for a cat anymore. Yep. Um, so I think uh, it's understanding the animal and working with that understanding to protect yourself and your pets. In Arizona, you don't put, if you got a small dog, even a big dog, you don't put him outside alone for any time. You're out there with him when he goes out. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, the coyotes are going to get him. And the coyotes have got so sophisticated in Arizona is that they'll, in the case of a big dog, they'll jump the fence and the dog will jump the fence after the coyote because he's seen the coyote do it and the coyote will lead him out into the bush where the pack is and then the you know they take the dog and the little dogs well, the coyotes just come and grab them jump the fence and they're gone cats the same thing and yep. it's the same thing here in, in in london to a lesser degree you put your cat outside well shoot we got more phone calls now for great horned owls let alone coyotes and uh, great horned owls eat skunks that's their main dish. Really? So if you've got a black and white kitty, you don't want to be leaving him outside at night, you know, because yeah. he can't hear that owl coming. They're perfectly silent flyers, and they're going to get taken. And the next thing you know, it's, they blame it on the coyotes because the cat's gone missing. Well, maybe not. Now, real you know? quick, what is it about the skunks that attracts those owls? Yeah, owls just have bad taste, I think. <laughs> I guess, literally. I can't even imagine. Pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, that's the strangest thing. I've never heard that. Yeah. I, when, we st- when I first started taking in great horned owls and for rehabilitation, I, I actually thought they had a musk gland because they all stunk like skunks. But it turns out they, yeah, they eat skunks. And they, the talons on a great horned owl are huge. And so they puncture vital organs and often will grab them by the head. And what a lot of people don't realize is a great horned owl, the um, compression from their feet. A, a bald eagle has about 700 pounds per square inch gripping strength. That would be like somebody weighing 700 pounds with one inch heel standing on your hand with all their weight on one foot. That's going to leave a mark. Mm -hmm. And that's how much pressure they can apply. Now, a great horned owl isn't quite 700 pounds, but damn near. And so, yeah, catching a cat, yeah, they they may not be able to carry your cat off if it's a long one, but they'll just eat them on the ground. That's right. (laughs) You know? Yeah, they they can do the deed right there. That's right. So I think one thing I would like to see on the the cat and coyote kind of topic there is... Uh, certain townships, certain cities have different bylaws. Yes. Um, I actually did have an issue uh, at my house in Strathroy with some feral cats, and I, I, maybe not feral cats, but the neighbors' cats. There was an abundance of them. Mm. Probably had too many more than they're supposed to. Mm-hmm. Strathroy doesn't have a bylaw on having cats loose outside. They need to. They they certainly do. Yep. So if if there's a discrepancy between hunters and non-hunters, um, you know, 
saying that we're going out and killing all the coyotes for whatever reason. It's not. We're controlling them. But you also need to control the cats. Sure. So in doing so, let's, you know, work together. Let's create, you know, get rid of some of those same focus points mm-hmm. for those species, food. Mm-hmm. And then we might have, you know, less of that, oh, look at all these guys taking care of the coyotes. Look at mm-hmm. all these, you know, feral cats gone. Like, mm-hmm. so, so that's one thing I would certainly like to see. And I hope. You got to work together. You do. Yeah, there's there's no there's no one thing that is at fault here. It's it's usually a combination of things. And you know, as a pilot, I know that if I take care of the little things, uh, I don't have to worry about the big ones. That's right. You know, it's usually the basics that are going to save your butt. Mm-hmm. And um, it's the same thing with wildlife. You know, and wildlife management. If you're taking care of little things, the big things aren't going to be there to haunt you. But so often we just let it go, let it go, let, and then it's a problem you have to deal with. And, uh, my gosh, you know, if, if your life depends on it in the cockpit, you don't want those big things coming up very often. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, there's very, there's a lot of similarities there. You'd, uh, kind of picked my brain a little bit there, uh, before we sat down on the whole lead ammunition. You want to talk on that some more? Yeah. You know, I, I'm a, a big advocate of non-lead ammunition. I know it's more expensive. It's, you know, and, and that's a pain. I know that a lot of uh, uh, hunting stores don't even carry non-lead ammunition, but it's coming. We need to be careful with it uh, because um, there are some states, the United States, that have banned it outright. Um, it's, um, there's a lot of migratory birds down there that are suffering miserably. There are, you know, the California condors are on the brink of extinction. Uh, lead, even up here, uh, is almost in every wild raptor that uh, comes in for rehab. And that's not just our facility. That's a universal thing. Um, we had two bald eagles uh, just in the last week in our Regina office that came in died from lead poisoning. And that was a definitive diagnosis from Guelph University. Um, so, you know, and that lead poisoning comes from, um, from a number of things, uh, you know, a carcass that is shot and you know, hunters will dress things in the field mm-hmm. and that, that bullet fragments and goes into the, the gut pile or whatever. And coyotes and and um, and bald eagles are eating that. Yeah, I would see that largely out west. You know, what being something that where that hunting instance, there's a lot of pack outs happening. Yes, right. There's there is a lot of, of game, or you know, so, you know, I, I won't say a lot because a lot of people do utilize most of the game, but for sure, I can see that being out there. Would you see yeah. that to be the same problem here? Well, yeah, there are some gut piles that are left behind. Um, the the bullet fragments, and it's not in every case, but. You hit a big bone like a femur or something, and uh, or you know a shoulder shot, and that's where you're aiming, aren't you? Right up yeah, there right by the shoulder. That shoulder. Yep. And if your bullet just is off a little bit because of wind or distance or whatever, you can have that problem. But the what's even more concerning is what's in that meat. You know, what are you taking home to the kids? Type of thing. I have X-rays of packaged uh, venison with lead in it. And uh, some of it is bigger chunks, but the large part of it, when that bullet hits the bone, it fragments and turns into dust almost, but it's still in the meat. And it shows up on x-rays like stardust, just mm-hmm. little sparkles. And, uh, and that's what it is. So, you know, you don't want to be feeding your family that, you know. So it's a little bit, it's like buying insurance almost when you're using non-lead uh, ammunition. Is it worth it? If you love your family, maybe it is, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, you know, yeah, I, I think that uh, there is a place for non-lead ammunition. Uh, some people used to argue that the ballistics were different. That's, no, they're not. Uh, I think there just could be, I mean, it's, the ballistics are, are, I would say, to that are probably different because it's what we know. We don't really have much ballistics on, you know, we haven't put the same, the same backing on other types of material. Yeah. Well, I think, too, that the... You know, if there's any difference in the, the flight of the bullet as a result of the weight difference, uh, I mean, everybody target shoots. Mm-hmm. You, you can adjust for that. Absolutely. Uh, the, I guess the real question is the, the weight behind the bullet the, on impact and the damage that it does and how fast it'll bring the animal down. 
there may be some difference on that, but it just requires us to adapt a little bit, you know. And Again, rolls right back to education. It does. Absolutely, it does. So am I an advocate for non-lead ammunition? Yeah, absolutely I am. And I think the United States, and some states in particular, are leading out on this. It's something that will be here eventually. It may not be here for a few years down the road yet. I hope it's not uh, too soon or too late. But, um, yeah, we need to think about that. I want to know what type of tips that you could give. This is, this is going to be a big one. I was, uh, like I had been brainstorming this question for a while. What kind of tips could you give to hunters, you know, given your standpoint on a, a side of research and rehabilitation and education, can you give to hunters to help better themselves as a hunter do more, do better as they're hunting, you know, out in the, out in the wild? Yeah, I think it's like everything else. It's knowing your craft, you know. Um, I mean, a responsible hunter uh, not only knows the animal that he's hunting, but he knows uh, how to dispatch that animal quickly. Um, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of deer out there every year. They get shot and run off, and before you find them, the coyotes have got them. And... Um, you know, so you, you want to make sure that every shot that you take is going to be a good one. It needs to be a kill shot. And uh, I know that's possible, you know, but if you're shooting through a bunch of bushes and your bullet hits, you know, a leaf even, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change the trajectory of that bullet. I'd and be lying if I said it's not happened to me. Yeah. Uh, just in this past season, uh, I made a shot on a deer that I, I thought was perfect. And it, it obviously wasn't. I didn't... Uh, Maybe my broadheads weren't sharp enough. Mm. Um, it, it, the arrow was a pass-through. I tracked blood for over 600 yards, mm. and I couldn't get the deed done. I, yeah. I managed to get the deed done come uh, a month and a half later when he walked by me with a giant cyst on his right side. Wow. And it was uh, infected. Yeah. So. Yeah, it happens. It does. And under the best of circumstances, it will happen. But you want to minimize those happenings mm -hmm. as best you can. And uh, there are some things that are out of our control. You know, you take a shot, especially with an arrow, and the wind comes up, there you go. Um, but there are things that we can do to be prepared. Every time I step into the cockpit of an airplane, I have gone through a list of, mm -hmm. you know, checklists, and uh, I know that airplane is ready to fly. But if you're going out hunting and you're not ready... Um, there's a number of things that can get in your way and turn that hunt into a bad one. Yeah, not only for the for the animal that's being hunted, but sometimes for the hunter too. So you just got to be careful. You got to be thinking all the time. You know, you, you got to be fully prepared for all the situations, whatever species you're targeting. Um, there there are a number of things that can go wrong. I've had a lot of things go wrong, and more so, thankfully, a lot of things go right. But yep. Well, you learn from the mistakes of others, as they say, because you won't live long enough to make them all yourself, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah. And, uh, and hunting is a skill. There's no doubt about that. And unless you take it seriously, you shouldn't be out there with a gun right. or a bow. So uh, I, I want to say thanks for having me in your You're facility. Welcome. This is great. Where can people find uh, information on Salt Haven Instagram? Yep, we're on Instagram, Facebook, uh, all social media, really. Okay. Um, our website, we're introducing a new website actually next week, uh, first week of March. So that'll be kind of exciting. Um, and um, yeah, we're always here. We're doing our thing. We're helping out animals. Uh, when are you guys taking applications for the 2021 season? For volunteer? For volunteers. Yeah, we're doing that now. We normally start taking applications the first week of uh, January, and we normally end it the first or second week of March. Um, we'll probably end it a little bit earlier this year because uh, COVID's not going away. It'll be yeah. next summer that things will be in full swing here. But um, yeah, we're uh, we're looking for the best of the best. So if you got a skill and you think you could help, give us a shout. Send in an application. Get the application right off our website, and uh, someone will give you a call and we'll get you in for an interview. Well, well we I... won't get you in. We'll do it through Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. I'd love to see those numbers. You know, doubled, tripled, even. You know, yeah. from, from 90 to a lot more, there's, uh, I know there's a lot like-minded people of myself out there that, you know, could even be in the same boat. They could be, if you're a hunter, an outdoors man or woman, 
you know, put an application in. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, we have hunters that uh, volunteer here. Yeah. So, you know, it's um, it just tells me that hunters are good people and they have a concern for wildlife. So we've had hunters bring us fawns that were caught up in fences and mm-hmm. whatnot, you know. We will so. be coming up to a stage here shortly too, Brian, uh, where we are going to start seeing a lot more of those fawns again. Um, can you give some advice to that? Uh, I've been walking through some Strathroy trails and I've seen some fawns just mm. sitting there. What is the right approach to do when you see something like that? Yeah, nine times out of ten, just leave them alone. Um, fawns are, they have no scent of their own. Uh, I mean, they're well camouflaged. Predators don't find them very easily, uh, but those big radar scoops they have on the side of their head called ears, mom and that baby, they communicate, you know, and they can hear each other half a mile away. That low frequency grunt that mom makes and that high little meat that the baby makes, they're talking, but mom's not going to go anywhere near that baby if she even senses there might be a predator in the area, and they'll see us as predators mm-hmm. in spite of our good intentions. So um, the, the, the way to tell if a... We have a saying here at Salt Haven, if the, when you see a fawn and you're wondering whether or not it really does need help, uh, the, the saying goes like this, if the ears are straight, the fawn is great. If the ears are curled, the fawn needs help in the world. So the very tips of the ears, about the ha- a half inch to an inch tip, if they're starting to curl, the fawn's dehydrated. Uh, but mom will leave that fawn six to 12 hours. In fact, we've had fawns left alone for up to 24 hours. So the best thing to do, leave it alone. That final state, it knows inherently to stay still. It can't run from from uh, coyotes or other predators. So it's only, we've had fawns that have been run over by uh, riding lawnmowers. They will not move. And uh, so um, you just leave it alone. It'll still be there tomorrow if it's been abandoned, and then give us a call. But mm-hmm. uh, we, we had over 80 calls for fawns last year. Only 10% of them needed help. So you see a fawn, leave it alone, unless that little saying, mm-hmm. if the ears are straight, the fawn is great. If the ears are curled, the fawn needs help in the world. Give us a call. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Brian. This has been a pleasure, and uh, I certainly yeah, hope I can be a part of your release at some point. And yeah, that'd be great. Love to check out the facility some more. All right. Thanks, Th- Cam. Thank you. Pleasure. Pleasure.